Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Almighty God, help us to embrace destabilization, that at your hands we would be made fully and finally free. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, walking out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no telling where you might be swept off to. Wisdom from The Lord of the Rings, a book with 10,000 unpronounceable names and unpredictable adventure. I find the same dynamic to be true whenever we've had for us established a friendship with Jesus Christ. It is both the safest and most unsafe relationship that we could ever have. When I first came to Jesus, I did so because I thought he would make my life easier. I mean, it sounded terrific. You know, if I was sick, I could pray and then I would be healed. If I was lonely, I would communicate with him and he would make me feel better. If I sensed within me a growing dissatisfaction, Jesus would fill me with some sort of real and lasting satisfaction. But I almost understood Jesus in a carnal way, almost understanding Jesus to be my own personal Arby's franchise. (laughs) Arby's has eclipsed now for me every other fast food restaurant and has become the apex of the fast food experience. You may know that Arby's has a secret menu, a secret menu that you can only learn about online. I watched YouTube about the secret menu. (laughs) And on this secret menu, is an item called the Meat Mountain. (laughs) The Meat Mountain is every single meat that Arby's makes on a bun. It is 1,500 calories, and it is the best thing that you've ever eaten in your whole life. Your mother has never made anything as good as the Meat Mountain. Now, when I consume the Meat Mountain, I instantly feel better and certainly fulfilled. Twenty-five minutes later, I feel like I might die. But at least the initial experience is what I thought Jesus would offer me. I would go to Jesus with my vast need, and he would always give me what I was looking for. And what I've come to discover is that the new life doesn't work in exactly that way. It does give a peace that passes all understanding and also a destabilization beyond all predicting. I was hopeful for only the former, but I have grown grateful for the latter. Paul traces out for us in Romans 12 the quality and character of the new life of friendship with Jesus Christ, which is destabilizing because it causes a departure from much that we find familiar and consoling. I want to say that trusting Jesus entails three novums, three new experiences. 
a new motivation, a new destination, and uh, a new perspective. The new motivation. As you know, to get something done in life, you have to have a resilient motivation to keep you going when things get difficult. You may remember the 1992 hit by the Proclaimers, a one-hit wonder Irish band. You know the lyrics, I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk 500 more, just to be the man who walked a thousand miles to fall down at your door. Right? You know it. What was this man motivated by? Probably hormones, but also... But probably love. He loved this woman, and so he would make the journey. But aren't you motivated by love? Maybe by hormones. You might be motivated by ambition. You might be motivated by attention. But there is something, there is something in the engine of your heart that is causing you to keep moving. Paul gives us what I regard as a rather odd motivation, at least at first glance. He says, please follow along with me in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I'm going to stop there. This is a transition verse because it has the word therefore in it. Whenever you see that in Holy Scripture, uh, you have to look at context and see why it's present in a sentence. There's usually an argument that has come before. So far in the book of Romans, Paul has traced out in painstaking ways the human predicament which is met in all of its gore with the absolving Christ who dies for sinners. And there has not been one commandment, one moral exhortation in chapters 1 through chapter 11, except for the fact that I lied, because in chapter 6 there are three of them. But other than chapter 6, we have gone a long way, as Paul describes for us, the human condition and its solution in Jesus Christ. And he now is shifting in the letter and is offering this believing community in chapter 12 40 exhortations, just in one chapter, 40 exhortations about how the Christian life needs to be lived out, 40 in one chapter. But he is basing everything from chapter 12 to the end on this idea of mercy, which is really what the first 11 chapters are about. More than that, he's basing it not just on God's mercy, but on mercies, plural, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Because in the letter, Paul hasn't detailed only one aspect of God's mercy, but a dozen. He forgives us for everything. He establishes peace with God. He justifies sinners by faith so that we have legitimate standing before the Lord. He has granted us the Holy Spirit to create in us renovation. He has grafted us into God's family by a spirit of adoption. And he concludes that now nothing, nothing, nothing in you, nothing you ever experience, nothing you ever do, will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And he is saying to us that morals are always predicated 
on a robust, enduring mercy. You may know the name Eben Alexander. He was a neurosurgeon and at one time an atheist until he slipped into a coma. And when he was in a coma, actually died uh, for a while and had to be revived. After he was revived and then later came out of his coma, he claims to have had a vision of the afterlife of heaven. And he said that in paradise, he received telepathic messages, two of them. The first was, you are infinitely precious and nothing can take that away. Second, there is nothing that will disqualify you. Nothing you ever do will disqualify you. I don't know what to do with Evan Alexander, but I do know this, that through the mercies of God, that is true. You are infinitely precious, not just because you were fashioned after the image of your father, your maker, but also because you are a blood-bought image, which increases your stock. More than that, there is nothing you do, nothing that you say, nowhere you can go which will ever disqualify you because every step you take, you take within the county of mercy. So moral development is always predicated on mercy. We do not ultimately change, not for the long haul, because of a threat, because of some carrot and a stick, because of a bribe, because of a prize. We change long haul because of mercy. Mercy. We don't become obedient by somebody telling us to be obedient. If that's all it took, we don't need Jesus, you know. Plenty of good literature out there about how to order your life rightly. But we need a deeper help. Uh, I want to think about this in relation of parents to children, maybe teachers to children. I'm all, often thinking about ways to motivate my kids. The problem is that I'm thinking of those ways in moments of intense anger. <laughs> and so what I do, and maybe you do this if you're a parent, I scream through my teeth. You better get to, you know, and I don't know why we do, why do we do that? I don't know. But that's what I do, and I yell through my teeth. And that is somehow to, uh, uh, intended to change their hearts, where they will then discover oceans of love for me and respect that they have yet to find. But uh, maybe you've done that, you know, or just say, do this because I say so, based on your own credibility and authority. Or, or you, you say, I'm going to make an example out of you. And you make your kid look into the corner so that all the siblings, when they pass by, know that if they deign to go in that direction, then their fate shall be the same unto them. <laughs> or I've heard people talk about the fact that they need to break their children, break their students. Please don't ever say that, okay? It is deeply sub-Christian. We try to motivate in, in ways that involve force and control. And here's the problem. The long-term effect of such a strategy will cause people to conceal but not heal. What they will do is be shamed into silence. They may even nod and smile and do what you want them to do, but their heart will slowly be moving away from you. And whenever they do have a problem, they'll hide it from you. We have to have a different method of inspiring people toward the righteous life. And that method is mercy. Remember Portia, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath, and it is twice blessed. It blesseth him who gives and him who takes, and it is mightiest in the mighty.
that mercy is always the thing that draws people out. And so parents and those who oversee children and those who relate to other humans, whenever you show mercy to somebody and they know that that is the bedrock, if they know that's the bedrock of your relationship, that mercy will draw out the truth from them. And that will lead to a holier and loftier life. Remember St. James who said it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, once said this, architecture should be built from within. The architecture of the moral life must be built from within, from a heart that has been touched by the hand of God's mercy. And that's our new motivation. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Also, new destination. New motivation, new destination. I'm wondering where you're going. And they always talk about that in school. What's your goal? What's your future? How do you live into your future right now? That sentence stresses me out a great deal, living into it. Like, I can barely handle the present. You know? I'm not quite there. But what is it? Is it social ascendancy? Is it a graduate program, a stable family, or maybe the appearance of a stable family? Early retirement? I just heard from a Grove City graduate. Graduated last year, he said, yeah, I have a plan to retire in four years. That's cute, you know? Um, <laughs> or maybe moving to a place with more predictable weather patterns. But I find that my goals, my hoped-for destinations, are hoped for principally because they'll make me more comfortable. That's what I'm after. That's what I'm walking toward, greater comfort. You're probably the same way. But Paul puts before us a rather strange goal. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sacrifice. An image that connotates pain, loss, and all-encompassing death. <laughs> Perishing. What's worse is that he's not making this up by himself. There's a long religious pedigree behind Paul that is inspiring this statement. You know the Old Testament. The heart of their worship was not the singing of psalms. It happened in what they regarded to be the most holy place in the world, the temple, where the priest would go inside and slice open an animal. It's through the shedding of blood that sins are forgiven. That's what the Old Testament taught. Sacrifice perishing was at the heart of Old Testament practice. It's also true in the New Testament. Jesus is known as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Whenever somebody's trying to scrub away the atonement, they're scrubbing away Christianity. Sacrifice is in the bloodstream, so to speak, of our religion. And the motif of sacrifice is not confined to the Old Testament or Jesus Christ. It is the Christian destiny. Now, we're a living sacrifice, which has a positive sound to it, at least a more positive sound. That is, you don't need to die, and I don't need to die. And here's why we don't need to die. Because sacrifice was intended to settle moral debts. Well, your moral debt has been paid, so you don't have to die. But we are to be living sacrifices, says St. Paul, to present our bodies. This is a way of talking about everything. Everything that you touch and say and feel. To present everything that you are to the king of kings. Sacrifice is the right word for such a presenting to the Lord because it is painful to be dethroned. It is painful to relinquish customs and habits and patterns 
that we have collected around ourselves because they bring us a measure of comfort and consolation. And to get rid of them is no easy thing. It may, in fact, feel like we are cutting off our very hands, gouging out eyes, to quote Jesus of Nazareth. It is hard to relinquish patterns of feeling, thinking, relating, and spending. But perishing is the needful ingredient for flourishing. Think about, again, the example of parents to children. If you want to be a good parent, you have to perish. Something in you has to perish. If you want to give your child the attention that she needs, your plans have to perish. If, if you want to be truly present with your family, your time, your own private time where you can recoup, some of that has to perish. Your affection will be drained from you at times. Your words of wisdom will go unheeded, and it will feel like a waste of breath. Your money will certainly perish. <laughs> Part of you will perish so that somebody else will thrive. But let me say that whatever is sacrificed to God is never definitively lost. Because anything placed in the risen hands of Jesus will develop in time a beautiful life of its own. This is what he told us time and time again in his own earthly teaching ministry. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So new motivation, new destination, and lastly a new perspective or a new manner of seeing. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The translation really should read, do not be conformed to this age. That's what the Greek says. Now, we talked about this last week, that Judaism believed that there was uh, an old age and a new age with a membrane between them. That membrane was the Messiah, but the membrane definitively divided those two ages. The unexpected plan of God was that the new age would invade the old age in Jesus Christ. And so the new age runs concurrently with the old age, and there's always strain and tension between what the world has been and what the world is going to be. But this old age is the age of the serpent, and it is God-hating and destructive. And it's always pulling you toward itself through an alluring face. In other words, this age, our old age, never shows itself, because if it were to show itself to you, you would run away. But instead, it looks beautiful and wise and inviting and sensual. And don't let it fool you. The old age will always tell you, I just want you to be yourself and be an individual. What it really wants is total conformity with the dark system. It's about being a lemming. It's about marching in step with the zeitgeist. There's a stirring illustration of the power and intent of the old age in a song by the folk band, the Forest Rangers, who uh, uh, recorded the soundtrack for Sons of Anarchy. And the song is entitled, Come Join the Murder. And that is a word with a double meaning, because a murder is a grouping of crows. And so I'm going to read you some of the lyrics of the song. There's a blackbird perched outside my window, 
I hear him calling, I hear him sing. He burns me with his eyes of gold to embers. He sees all my sins, he reads my soul. And one day that bird, he spoke to me like Martin Luther or Pericles, saying, come join the murder, come fly with black. We'll give you freedom from the human trap. Come join the murder, soar on my wings and you'll touch the hand of God, and he'll make you king. He'll make you king. And then the song, which gets darker as it rolls on, details the losses experienced by this tempted man, where he becomes numb to love, numb to the pain of others, and finally, like Icarus, he flies toward the sun, and his wings melt, and he comes crashing to the ground in a fatal way. But before he dies, uh, this is how the song concludes. So now I curse your raven's fire. You made me hate. You made me burn. And the raven laughed aloud as it flew from Eden, saying, you always knew. You never learn. And the bird no longer sings to me, like Martin Luther or Pericles. And I wonder if you've ever felt this way, that you have been led by the raven. You've heard the song of the raven, and the raven told you that everything was going to be all right, and the raven told you that if you just continued in this relationship that was obviously destructive, if you continued in this mindful pattern that you thought was about self-affirmation, if you continued in this horrifically abusive situation, that everything was going to work out but you listen to the raven because it promised you you'll touch the hand of God and you're going to be a queen, you're going to be a king and everything's going to be all right and you, you had melted wings and you fell from heaven and you've broken your back. Well, the gospel call is to rebel against the raven, to rebel against the alluring voice, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, one of the sweetest gifts of redemption is a little mental sobriety. Mental sobriety. Uh, I find in our own day, we don't have a lot of this. Uh, we need a cure from our zeitgeist hangover. Our age seems to be ruled by neither the heart nor the mind, but by the bowels. Now, what I mean by that is that within the scripture, uh, we have a three-part understanding of our internal life. The Bible has the mind, the heart, and the bowels. Now, the bowels are not what you think. The bowels are the place, at least according to scriptural association, of unprocessed reactive emotion. And so if I can put it this infelicitously, the brain is used to filter the bowels. But if you only attend to unfiltered emotion, you will become monstrous that God has given the brain to guard you, to give you a little discernment related to what is going on inside so that we don't become monstrous. And this is what repentance is all about. It is having a clear mind, a sober mind. In fact, repentance, the word itself, metanoia, means change of mind. 
that it's to put us back into the original design where we love the Lord our God with all, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that we become fully mindful creatures who are discerning and able to detect what the will of God is because we understand revelation, we understand what's been given to us, and therefore we have a sight, we have a sight that is not diminished by the fog of the times or our ears are not caught off guard and lured in by the raven's song. This renewed mind begins to detect dissonant notes. It knows when the raven starts to call. And I'll tell you, by the way, there's a telltale sign of how to know the raven is speaking to you. He will always diminish three things. God's righteousness, your sin, and the cross. And will offer you an alternative salvation plan, which sounds, and is at first, easier, more consoling, more comforting. The raven doesn't care which salvation plan you choose as long as you don't choose Christ. But there are a lot of them out there. Salvation via militarism. Salvation via nationalism. Salvation via romance. Salvation via inclusivity. Salvation via race. Salvation via rage. That's in right now, right? The appropriation of hate. As long as you funnel hate in the right direction, then it's virtuous, messianic. Or salvation via yourself. Salvation is in you. We get this both from the cultural right and cultural left. The cultural right gives you this myth that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and just fix your life through hard work. Have you ever tried to pull yourself up by your shoes? Do you know what happens? You fall on your face and you bleed. It doesn't, like, work. So that's the cultural right. But the cultural left says that salvation is inner discovery. It is finding your true identity and learning self-acceptance. Experience, in other words, is truth. No transcendent judgment on your life. You're the master of your faith. You're the captain of your soul. Ro Rosaria Butterfield puts it this way. There is a term that competes for my allegiance. Instead of sola scriptura, by scripture alone, the new term is sola experientia. That is, my personal experience shapes and selects those parts of the Bible I judge as relevant for me. But if God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his unique seal of truth and power, then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and my culture and not the other way around. Do we believe that scripture actually reveals something from God that might, on occasion, disagree with us? Do we give it permission to speak a word that is contrary to our nature? I hope so, or else we will just remake God in our own image, and that is a God who cannot solve nor save. So how do we get a renewed mind? That is one that grows dissatisfied with the raven's call, one that can discern a lusty lie. Well, right now, I'm going to sound like a cliched evangelical, and I don't care. Uh, here's how. It's friendship with Jesus. Friendship with Jesus. It's the only way through. Because Jesus told us in John's Gospel, make your home in me, I'll make my home in you. That's how we abide. That's how we're close. That there is this beautiful relating that needs to be fostered and developed. Notice I said friendship with Jesus. I do not mean status with Jesus. Justified status. That is established forever by grace alone, through faith alone, achieved at the cross. It involves absolutely no work on our part, and in fact forbids any labor. 
I don't mean that. I mean relationship with Jesus. I mean friendship with Jesus. And that is related to justification, built on justification, is predicated by the mercy of God. But it itself, it requires time. It requires patience. It requires effort. It requires attention, risk, tears, and internal wrestling. Now, practically, how do we do this? We go where Jesus is. And where is Jesus? The church calls it the means of grace. We attach to those things in which Jesus is present. Word, sacrament, worship, community, and one-on-one visceral prayer with God. AA can teach you, by the way, a lot about prayer. It always says the best kind of prayers are taking what is most urgent in your soul and offering that to God without a filter. That is how we do it. That is how relationship with Jesus is built. And that is how we develop a new head, a new mind. Without that, we will rely only upon our instincts, our bowels, and that, left to its own devices, will make us monstrous. The new life of faith involves new motivation, new destination, and a new perspective. We are motivated by mercy. My brothers, my sisters, you are infinitely precious, and you will never be disqualified. You will never step beyond the county of mercy. Our destination is sacrifice. We relinquish our rights. We relinquish our hearts, minds, souls, and strengths to their sacred origin. And our perspective is Christ-infused. The genius of Jesus Christ begins to shape our minds, giving us cerebral sobriety. This new life of Jesus Christ, which breathes itself into us, will often be unsettling. This new life will, by necessity, create discomfort and comfort. We'll be uncomfortable in ourselves, keenly aware of the darkness that remains, and we'll grow discomforted with the ever-beckoning age. By the way, if the voice of the raven is not heeded, it gets louder and louder, and if you still don't heed it, it will then attack you. If you stand with Jesus Christ, you will, in a sense, be on the wrong side of history. But there's also comfort. Because we will have an enduring companionship with the Son of Compassion, whose compassion for us and for those around us never dies. And we will have the comfort of knowing that while our sin runs deep, mercy runs deeper still. And we will stride hand in hand, day after day, with the ever-living, everlasting Christ, leaving the raven dead on the wrong side of history. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh